Hello and welcome to episode number 60 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and with me in the studio is my daughter, Aurora. This is a special day. This is lesson one of our four-part masterclass on brain health. And before we go forward, can you take a moment and explain why we changed that format? I'm really excited about this new format. We think it's going to be a game changer in how you learn about Lyme disease. See, before today, we didn't really have a plan about how we presented the information about Lyme. We just kind of went with our gut, who was available to talk to us. It it was a little bit like throwing spaghetti on a wall. It was the spaghetti method of teaching, no doubt about it. So the spaghetti method of teaching is you throw spaghetti up on the wall, and then you leave it there, and then people come by and pick the parts off that they like and try to make a meal out of it. Kind of gross. It's a very gross analogy. (laughs) However, it's making a point. So we put out 59 podcasts, and people would try and pick and choose the best they could about the topics they were interested in and cobble together some kind of coherent lesson plan. So we're going to take all that planning and mismanagement out of the question and do all that work for you so we can give you a coherent lesson plan. And- we're really interested in our ability and your ability to accelerate learning so that you can really get a handle on Lyme disease and turn the corner and get healthy. Yeah. And we're hoping that by being able to focus on a single topic and get it out very quickly, and in this case, it's four days, just to give your give you knowledge very quickly, so you can understand this topic better. Right. If you have to wait a month in between podcasts about a topic, there's no way you're going to remember what you heard. Maybe you'll remember a fact. And if you got Lyme brain that day, you might not remember anything. So you have a much better chance of taking the knowledge in, being able to act on it, if we stack, if we layer the podcasts one right after another. And our very first topic is brain health. Yeah, and the first topic is an introduction to what Borrelia does to the brain. And our guest expert is the perfect man to give us the first lesson. Yes, our first guest expert is Robert Bransfield. He's a psychiatrist, and which is an MD, of course, so he's got the physical medicine background to go with it. And he got interested in Lyme because he was seeing patients that just didn't make any sense from the psychiatric point of view. And he got very curious about what was going on. So, Aurora, why don't you tell us more about Dr. Bransfield? Dr. Robert C. Bransfield is a board-certified psychiatrist who graduated from Rutgers and the George Washington School of Medicine and finished his psychiatric residency training at Shepherd and Enoch Pratt Hospital. He first became interested in the link between infections and mental health 20 years ago when a patient referred to him by an infectious disease doctor improved tremendously after she went back on antibiotics. He has been a past president of ILADS and the New Jersey Psychiatric Association and currently owns a private practice in Red Bank, New Jersey. Thank you, Aurora. Let's dive right in. This is lesson one of our four-part masterclass on brain health. If we could start with how, as a psychiatrist, did you get interested in Lyme? What's that connection? Okay, well, it was over 20 years ago. I uh, 
was referred a patient by an infectious disease doctor I worked with, and she had quite severe psychiatric symptoms, history of Lyme disease, and was considered cured because she had a month of uh, antibiotics and she kept deteriorating mentally. And I tried really everything imaginable to treat her and walking and then I uh, had her in the hospital and she was violent and horrific intrusive images throwing herself against the wall in the security room. And then I gave her IV and she improved quite dramatically. So that was convincing to me that it was life-saving. And I've had other cases referred by this and other infectious disease doctors. And uh, in retrospect, I'm sure I've been treating these cases for a long time, but we've been calling them other things. And at first, I looked for someone to refer the patient to, mm-hmm. and uh, there just wasn't anyone else to refer uh, her to, so I treated the patient myself, and I think many of us end up in that situation where, by default, we're forced to become experts in this area. Yeah. Now, I think many people are familiar with uh, kind of cross diagnoses in terms of physical diagnoses like MS and lupus and things like that. On the psychiatric side of things, what are, do you think are the misdiagnoses that Lyme people can fall under? Well, in some ways, they're not necessarily misdiagnoses, but they're symptoms that are associated with the infection. But there's a recognition of only one facet of the illness. For instance, a person may be considered to have chronic fatigue, which in fact they do, or they may be considered to have depression, which they do, Right. but you see other things associated with it. So it's a more complex, multi-systemic disease that has many pieces to it that are psychiatric, cognitive, emotional, uh, circadian rhythm, brainstem issues, and neurological neuropathy, and just generally systemics, the whole body is affected. Okay. And are psychiatrists in general looking outside of their field or, you know, do they kind of get the blinders on like most of us do and kind of just treating their their field? Well, a psychiatrist is first trained in general medicine before they become a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And we have that as our background. So we have to look at the body first and then consider uh, other things, we specialize more with psychiatric illness, which is more a part of the brain. We're, we have training in neurology and psychiatry, but a greater amount of training in psychiatry than neurology. Okay, so in best case scenario, that actually a psychiatrist is somebody who might be able to diagnose Lyme. I, I went over your... What's your document called? The Neuropsychiatric Assessment of Lyme Disease. That's a fabulous document. Um, and it's, uh, we need to help people. Thank you. Get, I've get used that there. on literally thousands of patients. Yeah. And basically, what it is, is it's the way we're taught to do an assessment in medical school. Mm-hmm. And in medical school, we're taught the old fashioned way of take a careful history. Right. 
listen to the patient and do a thorough review of symptoms, Mm -hmm. looking at everything, uh, going through all the different facets of functioning, for instance, the eye track, neurological, everything, not just looking at one piece of the patient, and then put things together and look for symptom patterns. Right. That's fantastic. And one thing you mentioned earlier that caught my attention, and maybe I've asked several experts this and I ha- on this, and I haven't gotten a, a definitive answer yet. You talked about the circadian disruption due to the Borrelia. It's, what's the mechanism that messes up people's sleep so much? Because almost everybody you talk to with Borrelia, they can't sleep or they're up weird hours or their sleep cycles are off. Okay, well, Lyme doesn't do anything good for anyone, but it does bad things in different ways in different people. It affects uh, the cortex, cognitive functioning, the limbic system, emotional functioning, and the brain stem, which is vegetative functioning. One part of that is circadian rhythm. And what I've generally found in working with a lot of people is invariably most Lyme patients, in fact, one study showed that they looked at Lyme patients, and 100% had sleep disorders. Yeah. And common patterns that we see. But invariably, if you broach the sleep disorder and correct that, that does a lot for helping the person recover. Now, there's theories with Alzheimer's disease, which are quite interesting. And there's, there's not a large number of cells in the wakefulness and sleep center of the brain and when you lose some of those neurons, then you get a disruption of the circadian rhythm. So that can create a certain vicious cycle of neurodegeneration. Okay. A person needs to sleep to neurologically recover. Yes. And where our bodies are designed to operate in a rhythmic fashion, and sleep is when we recover. So sleep is when the nervous system regenerates, recovers, it's also when the immune system becomes active. So in sleep, you see early inflammatory response for the early part of the disease, and then you see adaptive immunity. So when you get a failure of deep sleep, delta sleep, you get a state where the person is immunocompromised, and it's hard for them to ever recover. So correcting that is critical. Another thing that occurs is, a lot of Lyme patients have a sensory hyperacusis. They're very sensitive to noise, sound. They have difficulty filtering out stimulation. So as a result of that, there's a tendency for them to be flooded with stimulation during the day. And they like being up at night because there's less stimulation uh. and they can hear themselves think. So a lot of Lyme patients shift have a circadian rhythm shift where they're up late at night and sleeping during the day. They're also sometimes what appears to be oversleeping, often because they're not getting good quality sleep when they are sleeping. So there's the failure of uh, true restorative sleep. So a lot of times I do sleep studies. I find a fair amount of sleep apnea, sometimes caused by Lyme and maybe sometimes preceding it, which impedes recovery. Right. I see... uh, narcolepsy, cataplexy, uh, quite a variety of sleep disorders. And dealing with that often is a big part of helping someone recover. 
So I know narcolepsy is just randomly falling asleep. What's cataplexy? Did I get that right? Well, narcolepsy actually have, has four parts. Okay. Someone with narcolepsy often does not sleep well at night, but they have, might have sleep attacks during the day. They might have sleep paralysis, where when they wake up, they're paralyzed and can't move. They feel pressure in their chests mm. because their intercostal muscles aren't under voluntary control. Right. They're breathing only with the diaphragm. They could have hypnagogic hallucinations where they dream before they fall asleep or the other symptom that we see as a part of narcolepsy can be cataplexy where there's a sensation of going limp. Oh. Muscles just go weak. In a more subtle degree, a person might notice it more as weakness behind the knees and often triggered by emotion. No kidding. So that's actually a sleep issue or a psychological issue or such a brain issue rather than like a muscular skeletal issue. Well, it's a circadian rhythm disorder. Okay. And it's a, uh, it's a physiological issue that results in significant impairments in a person's functioning, including cognitive and, uh, psychological. Yeah. So let's talk about the cognitive for a little, because so many people talk about their brain fog and their inability to keep short-term memory and things like that. How how does the Borrelia, does it directly affecting those part of the brains, or is, are they uh, endotoxins that are doing that? What's, what's happening? Well, it, it seems that there's multiple pathways in which the Borrelia or other tinct born infections, some of which are identified or yet to be identified, mm -hmm. uh, can impact the, the cognitive functioning. Now, the early symptoms that you usually see are more executive functioning impairments. And then later, you can see other types of symptoms develop. In a few cases, I've seen a couple of people where they have a very rapidly progressive, uh, what we call subcortical dementia that very rapidly progresses. And I think there's a different mechanism there. So there's three basic ways that Braille per se can affect the brain. One is by being in the body and that results in inflammation in various ways. And there's multiple pathways through which this inflammation occurs. And these Either products from the Braille itself are inflammatory and then have an effect on the brain or they provoke inflammation in the body. And the inflammation in the body causes a response in the brain. So you can have significant impairments from infection in the body, even if it is not in the brain. Okay. From the episodic flaring of inflammation in the body. So that's what people may think of. It's brain fog. Now, there's a condition we call sickness syndrome. And sickness syndrome very much is a state that's associated with higher levels of inflammation in the body. So it's a response to sickness. And uh, think of it with getting the flu. We can also replicate it when we give interferon treatment when a patient has hepatitis C. So there's this apathy, lack of energy, brain fog, 
a person just wants to lie around, sleep, not do much, um, unmotivated state, and that correlates with higher levels of inflammation. What can happen is inflammation in the body through various pathways can evoke inflammation in the brain. Mm -hmm. We call it gliosis, and there's that effect then disrupts the normal neurological functioning, causing uh, some of these symptoms. And then what about if the Borrelia itself is able to pass through and infect the brain? Then then what do we see? Well, when it does go into the brain, and uh, 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 actually the three ways. One is infection in the body causing inflammation. Right. The second was infection impacting the vasculature. Okay, right, of course. Third way is where it's actually in the brain. So let's back up, and can we talk about the vascular a little bit? So is that like many strokes happening? Is that what's going on? Well, it it could, or or it could be you can get a, um, what we're looking at is when we think of impacts of infections in general on the brain, inflammation in vessels can result in reduced circulation to the brain. And we think of that with Borrelia. Uh, we think of that also with uh, dental infections that are spirochetal. Okay. And uh, Borrelia myomoti, myomoti, um, trochanthin. That also seems to have significant effects on the brain, maybe within the brain. And uh, the other, the third way is where it actually is in the brain, and autopsies are done, and you see that in nerve cells, and that was proven by um, about 60-some journal articles at this point. Right, and Dr. McDonald's work as right. well. Right, yep. he's done quite a bit of it, uh, and Judith McCloskey has done quite a bit of it. But those have been the two main researchers that have worked in this area. And so once the Borrelia gets in there, is it, just doing direct damage to the nerves. Do we know? Do we know what it's? Does it feed? I know it feeds on collagen. I've read that somewhere. But does it feed on the nerve cells as well, or the myelin? Well, or? not so much feed on it as it can be in collagen, and it can. I have pictures taken by Dr. McDonald of Borrelia inside nerve cells, half in, half outside nerve cells, similar to the photographs that Dr. Dorward took with white cells where it showed um, Borrelia going in a lymphocyte and uh, penetrating it and then existing within the cell, right. sometimes causing the cell to uh, break up or at, least, at the very least often to be dysfunctional. Okay. Well, the problem is that when you have these infections, and right now I'm just talking about Borrelia. Mm-hmm. There are multiple pathological pathways occurring at the same time. Right. Some of which are mediated by provoking cytokines that cause symptoms. Some are mediated by the proximity of the spirochete to neurons causing an adverse reaction to the cell. Some of which are mediated by uh, antigens from the Borrelia that are released and cause inflammation in the brain and in the vascular effects. So there's multiple methods 
of of destruction happening at once. Now, one of the studies done by uh, quite a number of years ago, after infection, they found Borrelia in the in the through the spinal fluid right. 36 hours after the initial infection. Right. So it can go there quite early, but we don't know how long it may sit there. This may be like uh, chickenpox, where it may just sit for a while and then become activated at a later date. Or it may take a rapid progressive course early. Either can happen. And so the d- damage that's being done, and as you said, not only by the Borrelia itself and the other co-infections, but the body's response to these infections, the inflammation it generates. In your practice, are you seeing people recover from this, or is some of this damage permanent? What's what's the prognosis for this sort of thing? Well, I've seen both. It seems like there's some people that get a lot of tick bites and do fairly well, and other people that get a tick bite and, and just take a rapid downhill course, and it's hard to explain why one person takes one path, another person takes another path. So in some people, maybe it could be a fairly benign condition because they have some immune resistance to it or their body has some ability to deal with it, and other people uh, have a nosedive. In trying to look at that, if you think that Borrelia, they found Borrelia in amber in the Dominican Republic uh, that was 15 million years old. So this is an organism that's been on the planet for at least 15 million years. Right. And it's probably the most complicated bacteria there is with the greatest number of genes and greatest capability for genetic adaptability. So it survived that long by having adaptive capabilities. So we can't look at this the way we think of a run-of-the-mill infection. And I think a big error people make is they rely on immune-based testing for an infection that has immune um, evasive and suppressant capabilities. Right. So you cannot trust immune-based testing for a definitive diagnosis. You have to use old-fashioned medicine with uh, involved assessment, like I spoke about before. Right. Do you have any hope that some of these new tests will break through and be accurate? Some of the things in the pipeline? New test or, or treatment? Testing. For both. Testing. Well, Test. let's do, we talk about yeah. both. All right. Well, testing, uh, it looks like some of it may be better, although I think there's, there have been people that have come out with some good tests that, and there's been resistance to it because yeah. there's a uh, tendency to keep the status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I think if there is a test, your problem is that there's so many different strains of yeah. Borrelia, Burgdorferi, and so many different variants of Borrelia, not just Borrelia, Burgdorferi, and your other co-infections that you you have to think in terms of tick-borne disease. Right. And this very restrictive definition of Lyme disease... It's part of the problem, is, um, isn't it? Yeah. ...held by the CDC, which yeah. is basically... Lyme disease based on Lyme arthritis, the Borrelia burgdorferi B31 strain from Shouter Island laboratory strain with the Dearborn 
two-tiered interpretation. Yep. That represents a very, very small percent of what we're dealing with with these complex interactive chronic infections that are associated with tick-borne infections and probably then are also associated with other infections that aren't just tick-borne that may have been in the body or acquired that are opportunistic or uh, co-infection process. So you have to be careful that any test can give false security. But if you say, well, this particular organism isn't present, that this is a mix of infections that we're dealing with, and that does little to reassure that the person's okay. You have to look at symptoms. Right. You have to go by old-fashioned medicine, the way people have done it for 2,500 years, with Hippocrates and Ulster, go by the symptoms. That's what we look at. And you may or may not get confirmation with tests, even when there's new tests that come out. They'll all have limitations. So then how how does the system then, like, create the time? Because what are the, the AMA studies showing that a doctor's got, you know, five to seven minutes with a patient, and within 30 seconds they're interrupting and already starting down their differential diagnosis? How can we give these the frontline people like you time to do the proper diagnosis? Well, the problem has been this whole um, assembly line medicine that's been created with insurance companies, managed care with the five to seven minutes. In many ways, that's part of what's created the problem. Hmm. When when I see a new patient, I I do an hour and a half assessment and I have to, work fast in an hour and a half to get everything in. Right. You have to, in assessing these problems, you have to make that adjustment to properly evaluate someone. And I know people that do assessments that are longer than that. And that's what it takes. So there are no shortcuts. No, if you do a shortcut, it's going to be a problem. And uh, better you take the time and, and do a thorough assessment and use good clinical judgment, look for pattern recognition, that's the way to do it. And uh, what you don't do is do a two-tiered, run-of-the-mill, commercially available uh, line test with an ELISA that's negative and say, well, the ELISA is negative. Therefore. There's only so many vans in the Western blood, so therefore that rules out tick-borne disease. That is... A dangerous thing to do, but unfortunately, that's what many people do. It's a common practice to say, well, let's do the commercially available uh, Lyme test, and if it's negative, that's a, then you don't have Lyme. That's surveillance criteria, which, as we know, even by the CDC, um, the Lyme testing is done per year 3.4 million times a year. Oh, okay. And out of those 3. 4 million tests, right. 30,000 cases of Lyme is diagnosed. Oh, my goodness. So that's less than one in 100. Yeah. But that means at least 3 million times a year, a doctor thinks this patient might have Lyme. Right. And this is a test that picks up less than 1%. Now, we know the CDC says by other ways of analysis, there's at least 300,000 cases of Borrelia burgdorferi Lyme per year. So even looking at that number, that's one in 10, something's very wrong with the testing. 
if we threw away the Lyme testing and made it illegal, things would be better. It would force people to use their judgment. It would, it would help get away from this inappropriate reliance on the current highly flawed testing that exists. Yeah. You know, I live in rural central New York, and there are more cows up here than there are people. And in one of our local vet's office, he has a sign up, and the last date I saw was on June. And in June, there were 245 confirmed cases of Lyme with the dogs. And that's just one tiny little clinic in this big county. And the county number for the two years ago was that there were 15 cases of Lyme disease. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't track. There's just, they're missing so much. So I think. Well, there, there's dogs are less political than people. <laughs> and if you go to the website dogsandchicks.com, it's a very good website. It really is much better than what we see with the CDC in tracking disease. And a good example would be Colorado that might show a thousand cases of Lyme disease in dogs in one year. And the CDC maybe that same year would be one case. Right. And it's broken down better. And often treatment is, it's sooner, it's quicker, uh, it's more aggressive, particularly with racehorses. They get hyperbaric oxygen treatment. They get very aggressive treatment. And uh, you don't run into the obstacles in veterinary medicine that you do in human medicine that impede the diagnosis and treatment. And the surveillance statistics. So I would say go by the dog statistics for your epidemiological data rather than human. And invariably, a question I ask in history is, does the dog have Lyme? Uh, Do other people in the family have Lyme? Right. Do other people in the neighborhood have Lyme? Yeah. That's so critical, isn't it? Dr. Bransfield, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much. I want to leave. If you want to say anything that you think we've missed that's important for people to know, A, and then B, for people to get in touch with you in your practice, what's the best way to do that? Well, the best way is not to get in touch with me because I have phone calls all day long. The best way is to find someone who wants to learn more and uh I have a discussion group for doctors so that they can learn more, and that way we can help to educate more people on this. Um, since you mentioned time, time management is often a critical problem with Lyme patients. They lose that capacity, but that's a part of executive functioning right. impairments, which is the ability to create and sustain goal-directed behavior. And one thing on a cognitive level is I work in the New York uh, suburban area, and I see some high-functioning people, and they're used to like working on Wall Street or doing these high-level jobs. And when they get a little bit of cognitive impairment, it can make a big difference with their level of functioning, and they can sometimes make some quite serious mistakes. And uh, it's it's a very different thing. A lot of people think, could it be Alzheimer's? No, it's not. It's different. It's more a slowness of processing. In addition to the executive functioning problems, there's attention, there's sound sensitivity, there's um, word-finding problems where there's a delay in retrieval, slowness of processing information, dyslexia-type symptoms. So you see this mix, and 
attention deficit disorder can come up, but no one ever acquires attention deficit disorder later in life. That's something you're born with. Hmm. It can look like attention deficit disorder and have similarities to it, but it's, it's quite different. And uh, so this, this combination of these cognitive symptoms can be a giveaway. That combined with emotional, uh, the mood reactivity, anxiety, depression that wasn't there before, uh, irritability, temper outbursts, aggressiveness, peripheral neuropathy symptoms, musculoskeletal aches and pains, headaches, particularly behind the neck. That's the common presentation. That's the pattern recognition that we look for. And with those kind of things, and what you want to do is, what someone wants to do is go to a doctor who has an open mind. If someone thinks after you give them information, that's a good sign rather than them having the answer already and not even thinking about it. Right. So someone who is has humility, who isn't rigid, who isn't locked into following someone else's protocol, that's the person that you need to go to for treatment for these conditions. And psychiatrists do have a lot of it. Psychiatrists are more trained this way because we often see the failures of the general medical system mm. because when something doesn't make sense, they say, well, maybe that's psychosomatic, so we'll refer it to psychiatrists. That's part of why psychiatrists get these cases. And uh, psychiatrists aren't, for the most part, very rigid in dealing with Lyme disease. They're open-minded. It's their training to do a thorough clinical assessment. But also, we see the psych symptoms. And also, we see the trauma of dealing with this condition. So those are three different reasons why we deal with these cases. But I think any psychiatrist or someone... Or who's open or contact ILAD to get the name of the doctor in your area. Okay. And if somebody does have an open-minded doctor who wants to learn more, can they point them to your group? How do they, how does a doctor yeah, become them, part of your then, group? Uh, have them call my office and uh, I'll put their name on my discussion group. I've been doing this for, I guess, 16 years now. And we have 600 doctors in the group from, uh, I guess, over 15, maybe close to 20 countries now. That's fabulous. Well, thank you for that. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. And thanks for helping the people to be more aware of this. It makes a big difference and can really change someone's life when they recognize this and turn it around early in the course of the condition. Amen, brother. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the rest of your vacation, and thank you so much for your time, Dr. Bransfield. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. I learned a lot from Dr. Bransfield. You know, sometimes I have to be reminded that the brain is a physical entity that can be treated. Absolutely. He's the perfect guess for lesson one and the introduction to what Lyme does to the brain. This leads also perfectly into lesson two, which is the next level. And lesson two explores brain waves and brain function and how we can actually alter brain waves, their techniques to alter brain waves. And this radically and safely, I should add, can improve a person's health. Yeah, you won't want to miss it. I think you'll like it. Can people still sign up for the Masterclass, Aurora? Uh, why, yes. Yes, they can. Go to www.limeninja.com, and here's the tricky bit. You want a forward slash brain 
underscore health. Again, it's www.limeninja.com forward slash B-R-A-I-N underscore H-E-A-L-T-H. So if you haven't signed up for the masterclass emails, you're really going to want to do that because at the end of that, we'll be sending out a resource list for the class that's going to have lots of great links to all kinds of cool stuff that we mentioned in the podcasts and different ways that you can really help your brain. So thanks, Aurora, and we'll see you all at Lesson 2. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.